Hey, this is Mark. Earlier this week, we taped the podcast from the Vive event in Miami Beach. Vive is a new tech event focused on the business of health systems. And besides enabling your host to escape the winter weather for a couple of days, the event also featured a range of top stakeholders addressing the key issues in digital health, from interoperability to investing, and from the convergence of health data to how COVID has advanced consumerism and healthcare. Over the next week or two, we're going to be bringing you six in-depth interviews with these speakers. But my first three guests were not only a microcosm of what's happening on the front lines of health tech innovation, they represent three of the five main stakeholders in healthcare, payer, provider, and policymaker. So I thought a podcast featuring highlights from those three interviews would not only give our listeners a flavor for the more in-depth podcast to come, but would be highly interesting in their own right. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMNM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Mickey Tripathi is the National Coordinator of Health IT for the Department of Health and Human Services. Ashok Chanuru is Chief Data and Insights Officer at Anthem, and Vish Anantranam is Chief Technology Officer at the Mayo Clinic. Listen to the highlights from these three stakeholders and you'll get a good take on what the post-COVID landscape will mean for health data. But first, some housekeeping items. Recruiting is now open for the next installment of Trend Talks, MMNM's invitation-only client-side roundtable. Network with peers, engage in lively discussion, and enjoy other perks of participation. The next Trend Talks is coming up March 23rd. If you're interested in joining, feel free to email me at mark.iskowitz at haymarketmedia.com. And also returning to the event slate for the third year is MMNM's 40 Under 40 program, which celebrates the wealth of accomplished young talent working in and around medical marketing. The live event is coming up March 24th. For ticket information, visit mmm40under40.com. And now back to our show. Interoperability, the ability for health systems to exchange and make use of information, has been a buzzword in health IT for decades. But in a nutshell, we're not there yet. One of the biggest hurdles is a phenomenon called information blocking. Basically, when a healthcare organization blocks access to patient data. As it turns out, we passed a regulation designed to ban information blocking back in 2016 as part of the Obama administration's 21st Century Cures Act, but it took six years before the regulation got implemented. Here's my first guest, Dr. Mickey Tripathi, National Coordinator of Health IT for HHS, talking about how the ban could give patients easier access to their digital health records through their smartphones. So the rule is, um, uh, it's, it implements the 21st Century Cures Act which was passed uh, a long time ago, actually. It was signed by President Obama. That's how long ago the 21st Century Cures Act was passed uh, in 2016. And, um, and the rule had a couple, uh, the law had a couple of things in it for health IT. And one of the, you know, the main features, which was genuinely new, was the creation of this, you know, this, this new paradigm um, that we, you know, call information blocking. So that's what it was called in the rule, was uh, a specific, um, uh, you know, um, effort to, you know, stop interference as the, this is the way the law is framing it. Um, stop interference with the sharing of information with other authorized parties um, as allowed by applicable federal and state law. So the idea was that, you know, there's a lot of friction in exchange of information. HIPAA, um, you know, uh, permits the sharing of information with other parties um, without patient um, consent for treatment payment operations, as long as they're HIPAA regulated entities. Um, the 21st Century Cures Act in some ways complements that by saying, well, it's not just permitted to share information. You actually have an obligation to share that information as long as it's allowed by law and, you know, and, and, and practical, um, you know, sort of issues. So that's the importance of it. I mean, and then there's, there's some other pieces that, you know, that sort of complement that um, standardization of 
APIs for access to information, network interoperability, which we can dive into. But you know, but that's largely you know that that's uh, you know sort of the big policy thrust that came out of the 21st Century Cures Act. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's uh, you know not just a nice to have, but it's really necessary to have information flowing smoothly through the health system because there's a lot of decision points along the patient journey where you know that health data comes in handy. Um, and implementation and enforcement of this information blocking ban uh, has been a priority for the ONC. How, how big of a problem is information blocking currently? You know, it's, I mean, it's hard to tell. Uh, you know, we did, um, you know, the rule just went into effect, had been delayed, you know, for a number, you know, for a number of years for a variety of reasons. Obviously, the pandemic was mixed in there as well. Um, but, you know, we came in, we put it into effect on April 5th um, and said, you know, it's been over four years since the law was passed. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we, yeah, it's about time to actually put it into effect. So we put it into effect on April 5th. We just last week or the week before published data from the first year well, it was just short of, you know, a, a year of reporting of the complaints that we get. So the way this is set up is that, and it's a little bit unusual, but this is the way the law set it up, is that ONC is responsible for defining the policy, as it were. What is information blocking? What would be allowable exceptions that someone could say, well, here's why I'm not sharing information, but shouldn't be found, you know, um, to be in violation of the rule. Um, and also the law said that ONC was responsible for collecting complaints. I think it almost literally said ONC will set up a portal which is kind of funny. I mean, why point to that kind of technology? But anyway, you know, the law says we set up a portal. So we set up a portal. Um, so there's a portal where people can come and, you know, submit a complaint. Um, we had uh, about 275 complaints that were filed over that time period, which, which averages to like roughly one a day um, since, since April 5th of last year. Um, you know, who knows whether that's all there is, or is that just the tip of the iceberg, or is that an overstatement? Because of course, those are just complaints. And then the way the law, you know, works is that we get a complaint, but then we pass that to the Office of Inspector General. They're actually the ones who do the real enforcement, meaning they're the ones who do an investigation. They determine whether a violation has happened, and then they determine um, a penalty. Um, so, you know, so so it's also hard, you know, to say how much of let's just take those two hundred seventy-five. How many of those would actually turn into actual findings of information blocking? You know, we don't know. Just to step back for a second, you know, my perspective on information blocking has always been, and it continues to be, that. Um, that you know that the that for the vast majority of cases that we might think of as being information blocking, it's more a question of priorities of the organizations. It's not about an active you know chief information blocking officer that lives at every organization whose job it is to make sure the doors are locked tight. Um, it's much more about you know any any provider organization, any vendor supporting provider organizations. They have you know fifty things on their priority list, and it's really hard to you know sort of adjudicate among all of those. And so you know interrupt has, you know, too often found itself too far down the priority list, I think. Um, and so, you know, this is basically saying everyone needs to move it up on the priority list. It was certainly great to hear that we're finally chipping away at what makes interoperability so hard. Another big catalyst for health data is the convergence of clinical and claims data, which on a very broad level promises to unlock a ton of insights for various stakeholders to make healthcare a lot more user-friendly for doctors, insurers, and patients, and which has been a goal of digital health companies for years, but led to some very high-profile stumbles, the likes of IBM's Watson Health. Think about claims data residing in de-identified databases like MarketScan, for instance, which is one of the largest administrative claims databases, layered on top of what's on the clinical side, electronic health records containing details on the medical care of hundreds of millions of patients, much of it unstructured. 
Here's my next guest, Ashok Chinuru, who is Chief Data and Insights Officer at the Insurer Anthem, talking about why combining those two is such a complicated convergence, but his take on the progress in breaking down those silos. You know, because there's no one unique standard and, um, and then interoperability between payers, provider and pharma is just evolving. Right, you know, like uh, because when you look at large, you know, EMR systems, you know, everybody were operating, you know, within their own silo, right? And uh, there were no standards. You know, I know we have uh, HL7, and now Fire is emerging as a interoperability standard. Uh, but now, you know, with a lot of the, you know, the payer to payer, you know, all the CMS mandates, you know, it's starting to open up. You know, I, I would say one of our, you know, the biggest challenges was you know, getting data from each of the provider systems, right, like across the country, uh, and, uh, and and trying to clean the data, you know, because there was a lot of, you know, like uh, mismatches when you combine claims and clinical data. The terminologies like SNOMED, LOINC, you know, those clinical terminologies were vastly different. You know, just to give you the complexity, hemoglobin A1C can be represented 250 different ways. Right, and there could be, you know, like conflict between how they submitted claims and what you see in the medical record. So when you're combining it, you know, we call it, you know, like a, a longitudinal patient record. You know, you need to, you know, in, put a lot of rules in place to make sure that you're removing the garbage and having one version of the truth that makes it easily, you know, accessible, right? But the opportunity here is, you know, like the large, you know, like uh, medical record vendors like Epic, you know, like we have a good partnership with them, you know, on what they call Epic Payer Platform, with they're trying to standardize all this from an Epic system, so that way we get, you know, one integrated, you know, feed, irrespective of which Epic system you're going to, right? You know, so that's driving a lot of the payer provider collaboration. You know, the same thing we are working with other EMR vendors as well, you know, because right now, I would say the convergence, you know, through the mandates, including the price transparency rule, the payer-to-payer, payer-to-provider APIs, and putting the consumer in the center of everything is really helping to make progress, but it is a long journey. Mm -hmm. Sure. And just, you know, uh, piggybacking off your uh, Epic example, I recently switched from a provider in the Cornell system to one in the Columbia system in the area I live in, and it was no problem because they're both on Epic. Epic, But I would imagine if I was going from, say, Cornell to somebody in another part of the yeah. uh, tri-state area who yeah. wasn't on Epic would be a problem. So interoperability, you know, yeah. it's, it's a big issue. There seems to be some movement in that area of operability. Yeah. What trends are you seeing there? Yeah, in, number one is all the ecosystem players are a lot more open to having discussions and uh, being making their data more accessible, right? So that's a big trend. You know, obviously security and data use is the key because everybody is concerned on what we do with the data, you know, because if we leverage the data for care purposes, we see a lot more collaboration. But if we look at it more for revenue or using it for, you know, monetary purposes, there is obviously some pushback, you know, rightfully so. And then when data moves from point A to point B, you know, security of the data is really important. So how do we put, you know, the right encryption, both data in motion and data at rest? You know, so that's, you know, like, and blockchain is a a great opportunity we are exploring. So we're, you know, leveraging the blockchain techniques, you know, like from an interoperability standpoint is, you know, is really uh, an an emerging opportunity, Mm -hmm. right? So the big, the big thing here is putting the consumer in the center of everything. So how does it help, 
you know, like the opportunity even with, if you're on a Epic system and you move to a Cerner system, why we believe like the payers are at least we are, you know, important irrespective of where you get your care. You know, you could go and get admitted in an Epic system and you could go and see an orthopedic surgeon who has a, a you know, who's not on Epic or Cerner or you could go you know like and get your colonoscopy with a, a gastroenterologist who is on another system when we make the pipes to all this we get everything together and we aggregate it at that person level right so now you have one longitudinal view of all the information and we also are tracking how many times did they call us you know how many times and and really uh, looking at it as you know here is based on similar patients like you you know, you could, we are developing precision insights that say you could become diabetic, you know, two years from now. Or you could have, you know, a chronic kidney disease four years from now. Because we have seen similar trends based Projected on the data. Yes. Uh -huh. So, see, and, and our other approach is how do you leverage this data and deliver proactive, personalized, and predictive, you know, like care. Right, because that's really how to really leverage the power of data and put the consumer in the center of everything. And speaking of realizing promise, one of the most hyped areas of health IT involves leveraging AI and machine learning to harness health data. That's been a goal of digital health companies for years, but has tripped up some big academic medical centers like MD Anderson Cancer Center, which had been working with IBM's Watson Health to develop a tool for cancer doctors that would mine patient health records and thousands of pages of research from peer-reviewed medical literature for treatment advice. It hit walls including accuracy and the complexity of combining data from EHRs and billing claims with published research to provide a cohesive product. Here's my third guest, Vish Anantranam, who is Chief Technology Officer at the Mayo Clinic, talking about how healthcare has learned from those, ahem, experiences, and why he thinks this is a good time to do AI. This is really a very interesting time uh, from, from an AI and machine learning perspective and uh, in, in healthcare. There's a number of other, number of things that I think are converging, which makes it a lot different from even four or five years ago, um, let alone, I mean, we've been talking about AI and ML for 30, 40 years, you know. In, in fact, healthcare was one of the first industries to even start thinking about something, um, I mean, AI in, in production uh, state. The biggest problems of the years has been multifold. One is the lack of access to true multimodal data, and I'll get to what, what multimodal data is. The second is the, the lack of uh, systems to, or, or a compute technology to be able to process large amounts of data continuously. Um, and the third is the, on, the, on the applied side. How do you take this insight and make it accessible in a real workflow? Uh, you know, there have been too many models and too many efforts which show a very interesting proof of concept but has not necessarily been able to scale beyond the initial use cases or where they were, frankly, quite successful in those use cases. So, so I'll get to each of these and why now maybe a, a better uh, state we're in. So we look at the data. Uh, you know, obviously, we have really increased the amount of data accessible through, uh, through the EMRs through uh, digital systems like DICOM imaging and, uh, uh, and other, uh, and genomic data. Uh, but a lot of that data is now much more liquid and than it was a couple of years ago. And, and I think in no short, uh, no, um, 
small uh, regard is uh, the reasons for this is the ability for us to move some of this data more easily to highly elastic uh, locations like the cloud. And uh, so if you combine those two, uh, so, so that's on the data side. So we, I, I do believe that we are in a state where there's enough data and the data is, is uh, adequately liquid. The second aspect is, is the massive compute capabilities that, uh, that the cloud has uh, enabled us to do. Um, and there, there's, uh, I mean, there's no uh, denial that with the technology that the, uh, that's available for things like you know, advertising, for instance, which is very uh, requires high degree of processing at a fraction of a cost, and and I think the cost is equally important. You always had a lot of computing if you were willing to go to, let's say, a supercomputing center in the University of Illinois and be able to do massive uh, uh, jobs there. But not every organization had the uh, means to do that, and uh, and they were never. You could never do this in, in a timely way and in a, and a cost-effective way. I think both those parameters, with the ability to do more uh, on-demand computing, you don't have to set up these massive clusters, and now you can start to do these uh, AI machine learnings in, in literally a few weeks rather than months or years it would take to build computing enclaves, secure computing enclaves. And I mean, even if they were available, they were never HIPAA compliant. They were never, you know, they 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 were treated catering to the needs of startups and, and smaller companies that are not in the healthcare space. But I think big tech, bringing that technology available, whether it's Amazon or Google or Microsoft, I think that's the second dimension that's changed. The third is, I think, still evolving. And I, I think we'll, the next couple of years, we'll see if uh, the promise of interoperability truly allows us to bring AI to workflows for clinicians. And uh, I'm particularly excited about uh, about uh, standards like uh, Smart on Fire, for instance, where you can now st- or um, where, where you can actually start to bring those insights that may be in a separate computing environment from the EMR in real time, where decisions can be made, rather than just retrospective analytic types of things, which has been what we've been doing a lot. But the the hard part has been to bring AI to real time workflows. So, and I, I I think if you combine the promise of fire and we've seen that that it's truly uh, the industry has truly embraced that unlike uh, other standards in the past where you know you had adoption but high degree of variability in the adoption fire brings a certain amount of semantic normalization a certain amount of true interoperability which i think can change the way we do uh, ai in the future and i'll get to the second aspect of uh, one of the aspects of data that i'm very very um excited about, which is the multimodal access data. And this is some of the things that we're doing really in, um, in uh, Mayo as well. You know, if you look at the data in the EMR, that's one dimension of the data. And uh, often is not adequate enough. Um, so what, what these EMR vendors did, while they may have offered smart uh, fire integration, you were restricted to the amount of data that was available for that patient at that point in time in the EMR. Um, with the ability for us to bring this data out into, say, a cloud platform, you can now start to mesh this data with other sources. So, for example, at Mayo Clinic, uh, we have, we estimate about 30 petabytes of data that is what we have uh, between our clinical systems, our unstructured uh, data, as well as imaging systems. We have nearly five petabytes of, of radiology data 
another about terabyte of EKG signal data and um, another 10 to 15 petabytes of pathology images. And now you can, first of all, computing that amount of data is, is hard. So, so that was the second part of the problem. But now you combine the machine learning insights from structured and unstructured and imaging data to deliver those back into the EMR, you could never do it in the technology that existed in four or five years ago. So they always relied on the smart on fire apps that on the fire servers that existed in the EMR. And so it was a check the box was this truly embracing the ability to have a marketplace and an API where you can launch applications consistently. In addition to each of their own health IT priorities, I also asked my guests what they felt were the biggest technological leaps in the healthcare system during the pandemic or what they've seen at the conference so far that most interests them. Here's Dr. Tripathi's take on the healthcare system's reboot. Well, certainly, you know, um, more broadly, uh, you know, location-independent care is kind of how I think about it, um, has, uh, has, has just grown dramatically. Um, so, you know, we, we immediately leap to telehealth, which is, you know, um, you know our, our medical equivalent of Zoom, right? I mean, that's what everyone naturally gravitates to. And it's like, yeah, that is certainly an important part of it. Yeah. And, and so that's going to be, you know, that we know that's big. A whole lot will depend on, you know, how reimbursement works. And that's, you know, obviously something that CMS is working on of, you know, what happens after the, you know, the public health emergency and will they continue to you know pay for that? All of that. Those are all you know, questions that um, that CMS is working on. But there are other things that are also increasingly important that we've seen the rise of that we didn't really expect before, like, you know, the whole category of remote, remote diagnostics at home tests. Um, you know, if you think about all the testing that happens in the country um, with the push because of COVID for better technologies for you and I to do an at-home test that actually has a pretty good, you know, reliability and accuracy to it, um, that is now going to usher in, I think, all sorts of other tests. It's like, well, why aren't we doing more of that? And what that means is that more and more of the total testing that happens in the country is actually going to be through these at-home systems. If you just kind of say, you know, probably more testing overall because I can purchase those now, you know, on my own. But then more and more of that will actually be in these at-home tests. So that that is a whole issue now related to the interoperability of that. How do I actually get those results into the hands of of your provider, for example, who increasingly is going to want to know what was the result of that own, that, that at-home test, um, and also for public health reporting, things that are important to the country as well. So I think that's another really important, you know, sort of uh, new technology area that. Uh, Previously, it was focused mostly in the developing world where, you know, well, no, I did some work in a, you know, prior to joining the federal government with the Gates Foundation. We we're working on remote diagnostics technologies in Africa and, you know, and Gates was, you know, was, was funding a bunch of that. And now, lo and behold, a whole bunch of those things that we we're thinking about there were, you know, thinking about in the U.S. now. My guests were also fairly jazzed about what they saw and heard at the event. Here's a shook from Anthem's take on that. In-person care is not the only modality of care. And um, hospital is, you know, the future of care is where it is convenient for the member, right? You know, I would say I would start with that. And Anthem's approach, our digital first approach is, you know, really helping, you know, consumers through a wide spectrum of care. You know, so it starts with a digital tool like, um, you know, it can be a AI-based symptom checker or a chatbot, you know, to know more about your situation. And then leading to a virtual visit like, you know, like uh, a video uh, visit or chatting or texting with your doctor, you know, like, and then, you know, going to a physical in-person care if needed. So, so you have, you know, and you need to make it seamless uh, to the consumer. And you also need to make sure that all the data is available to, in the digital tool, 
to your virtual care visit, a virtual doctor, like, uh, or, you know, obviously it's there with the physical in person. So when you can make that experience seamless, that's when you get wider adoption, you know, of, you know, so rather than thinking of, about going to urgent care or ER, emergency room, if you can think about, you know, yes, I can have the conversation with my physician through a virtual chat, right? You know, that's really how you are focusing on improving care. Right. And the other aspect to it, it cannot just be primary care centric. You know, you need to have virtual care for oncology, you know, for, you know, like orthopedics because musculoskeletal related, you know, like a huge burden. Right. You know, so and and uh, and not having, you know, the only model of communication cannot be just calling the doctor after hours. Right. You know, you, you need to be able to have these different modalities of care, you know. And from our standpoint, our big leap of focus is going to be how do you make sure we are truly providing those leading indicators or insights to the physicians at the point of care, you know, like two years before something can happen. And what will Vish from the Mayo Clinic take back to Rochester, Minnesota as an idea for the future? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I mean, I think uh, it's, uh, it's clear that uh, there is a uh, healthcare IT continues to be an area which has rich investment from all all sorts of players. You can you can go from one end of the uh, for, you know infrastructure players like and to cybersecurity players to digital players to to data players, and um, you know ten years ago you would go to a conference in healthcare and it was largely EMR vendors and 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 you know I think it's it's becoming very clear that there is there is a world that I call as the post EMR world. We've all spent the last 15 years building really solid foundation for us to do the next big thing. And, and I think uh, you'll see a lot of them here. You'll see a lot of interesting companies that are trying to, uh, you know, integration used to be a big, hard, difficult word. It's slowly starting to become a commodity. Um, I wouldn't say it's a fu fully commoditized yet, but that opens up the ability to innovate much faster. And that's what you see here. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizi M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>